Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if you've grown up in the church and people start talking about, hey, do you want to do a Bible study or where are you doing your devotions or anything else? We're probably most comfortable in about this much right here. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hey, do you want to join me in a Bible study of the minor prophets? Or what about a study in the covenants of the Old Testament? You're like, uh, what about Leviticus? Let's talk about the law. Let's talk about, you know, let's talk about all the genealogies and who begot Uzi and Jehoshaphat. And, you know, you start getting into some of this, the, the muck in the mire of the Old Testament and all the history and all the stuff. And you're like, I just don't get it. I'm not confident about it. I don't know how it all fits together. Let's just kind of hang out over here in the Gospels and in the book of James. You know, things that we can talk about and we can apply like right now and that we can understand. But our goal in this series, specifically in the next 16 weeks, is to talk about this 80% and how it leans in and hints and foreshadows the crescendo of God's love story. So I want to invite you to make an effort to be here every week Anymore in this culture, and it's not this culture, I'm talking about this culture, there has to be an invitation given because anymore there's stuff that crops up and there's a nice day out and we want to go do this and there's this and that and the other. Let's just stay at home. Let's just do it. We want to invite you to be a part of every week so you can see how these things build and there's a crescendo throughout the whole series. Well, I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 1. And the book of Genesis chapter 1. You need to understand here this morning that there is going to be a little bit of a mode as to how we're going to handle some of these texts. And we've broken it up into three different areas. And you'll see this concept coming up quite a bit uh, over the next couple of months as we enter into the series. And we just ended the My Story series the last five weeks. If you're new with us or if you've been kind of in and out, I would encourage you to go to the website, listen to the podcast, catch up on all of those. But this story is going to dovetail and really that was just the introduction to this story and it ties in together. But we're talking about the idea of story and we're going to continue to talk about that. But there's three different realms of story that we want to land in. And the first one is called the upper story. The upper story is God's grand scheme, his sovereign will that is beyond time and not bound by time. That's the upper story. Number two, we're going to talk about the lower story. And the lower story is the actual um, reference that we're going to make, the narrative that we're going to be diving into of the Old Testament. That's really a good bit. And, uh, and it's important for us to recognize this morning that this is really a good biblical hermeneutic for us. And that's just a fancy way of saying how we interpret scripture. This three-tiered approach is good for us from here on out, not just in this series. We need to understand God's sovereign plan. We need to take a look at the lower story, the specific context and culture of what was going on in that particular time frame. And so much of the problem in Christianity and, and, and the way we're portrayed is because people take obscure verses and just whip them way out of context and throw them up to, to back their agenda or their idea, not doing justice to really what it meant to the people at that time, right? 
So we're going to dive into the lower story. We're going to talk about the cultural context and all of that. And finally, the third one is your story. Because we could throw out all the information in the world on you and even all the inspiration in the world. But unless there's application, unless there's movement on your part, like, oh, okay, God's got grand design. I see maybe where I fit into that. Uh, you know, the, the lower story. Okay, I can connect with them and I see that. What does that mean for you? What do you, should you do now? How should you think and process about it? That's your story part of it. So that's how we're going to format a lot of these uh, different messages. And we just want to go ahead and dive right in and talk about Genesis 1 as we talk about the beginning of the story. And we're going to start out referencing the upper story, right? The upper story that we're talking about here is God's perspective from way up here. Am I still in the light? Okay. Should I go one higher? You want to see me fall. The cruel people. Here at Northwest. No, but I'm going to preach the whole message from up here. Not really. But I want to start out from up here. Because this is where the story begins. It begins with a Godhead. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was up here above space and time. Looking down upon our world. And his perspective is vastly different. Things look different from up here than if I were down there in your world. And part of our problem is we live so often in our world and this is all we see is what's around us. We forget what the other perspective is. So as we begin this upper story, we see that there is a God. And you'll notice in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis uh, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, we see a, a unique and curious plurality of the Godhead. It says, in the beginning, God created. So we've got this element of God that is a creator. He is a maker and a mover. The heavens and the earth. Verse 2, it says, and the spirits of the Lord hovered over the waters. So we've got this other element of God that's a spirit somehow hovering. So it's an essence and there's a spirit part of it. And then it says, and God said... Let there be light and there was light. So we've got a word. We've got something that is spoken. So right out of the gate, we've got a creator and we've got an element of spirit. And then we've got a word that was spoken. So even right from the first two verses in Genesis chapter one, you get the idea that this God is unique and this God's got different roles. And there's some sort of plurality to who he is. And at the beginning of the story, this upper story, this perspective, we see that God in his goodness desired to create something. And here in Genesis chapter one, we've got an epic creation poem. We spoke a little bit about this last year when we talked about the hinges series and when sin entered into the world. But just to bring back to your attention in uh, Genesis chapter one, it is very metered poetry and a Hebrew uh, literary device that is employed that says something and then builds on it, repeats it and builds on it. It's metered poetry. You see that sometimes in the Proverbs. You see it in the Psalms, right? One thing I have heard, two things I have spoken. You, like, you see a lot of that meter that builds on what it did before. And here in Genesis chapter 1, you get this idea that the earth is formless and void. The Hebrew says tohu vabohu. 
That's a fun one to say. Formless and void. In other words, there's no boundaries and it's empty. And so here in this creation poem, God begins by forming the boundaries. The first three days are the boundaries. You see them right up there. Day number one, he says, I created the realm of light. Day number two, I created sky and water. Day number three, I created land. So now we're beginning to form some boundaries. This is what my earth, my universe is going to be. And then in the amazing creative epic meter, the second half builds on what he said in the first half. So not only uh, did he form it, but he also filled it. Right? So we've got a void with all these things, even that have boundaries. So on day number four, God fills this realm of light with the sun to guide the day and the moon to guide us at night. In the planets he hung into place, filled up the atmosphere. And day number five correlates to day number two. So he sees well, we got a sky and we've got an ocean. So we're going to do a bunch of birds up here in the sky. We're going to put a bunch of fish in the ocean and lakes and streams. Praise God for that. There's a little side note. It's my favorite part of creation. Side note. Right? And then day number six, we've got dry land, but we're going to fill the dry land. We're going to build on it. We're going to continually create and make it better. And we're going to create plants and we're going to create animals. And ultimately, we're going to create mankind. So you can see right out of the gate, this God who is starting this epic story does it with creative process. He could have just said, bang, there's everything. And he could have done that. But instead, he said, no, I want my people to know that I am thinking this through. I am taking my time. I am specifically forming and fashioning in an ever-building crescendo. And we know the story. We know that God breathed into Adam the breath of life. We know that he was there with all the mountains and all the animals and everything else. And that was great. But God said, it is not good for man to be alone. You get an amen to that? Anybody in here? That was your chance, guys. You could have just, amen. Right? So true to form, we're talking about Hebrew poetry and building on and improving on what was done before. So after man, God created a woman. So what does that say? Better than men? I'll leave that up to you. But the idea is that in God's economy, he desired to build a humanity, a human race, give opportunity for life and allow us as humans to share in the goodness of God. So the second part is the lower story. So here's the Godhead, here's the forming, here's the filling, and now we enter into the lower story of Adam and Eve. Here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And then this God, this plurality said, Let us, there's further evidence that this is not just one being, this is three in one. Even in Genesis, you see the Trinity referenced. Genesis 1, 26, God said, Let us. Make man in our image and after our likeness. So here God was saying, I want to create a people that are somehow like us. They've got an immaterial and a material part. Everything else that had been formed, 
In this great creation, it had material parts. It had flesh. It, you know, it, there were trees and there were plants and there, there was various forms of flesh on the earth, but that was all material. Now God is saying, this is going to be somebody who has immaterial, somebody who has spirit and not just body. And that's really important for us this morning to understand because the animal kingdom and everything else, there's bodies, but there's no spirit. So mankind was created with the spirit in the image of God. It's important to recognize also that man was created out of relationship. Because when you think about the Trinity, you think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all the evidence that we can find in Scripture. Yeah, it's confusing. Yeah, our minds don't quite get it. But we recognize that there's three different persons. It's one God, but it's three persons. And those three persons are in relationship with each other. They're reliant on each other. At points in Scripture, they submit to one another. And so it's important to recognize as created in the image of God, we are created out of a relationship, out of a community. And I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but for us at the beginning of the story, that is evidence that, you know what? I'm not in this alone. I'm not meant to be in this alone. I was created for relationship, not just with other people, but with the God of the universe. And that's where we find ourselves in this lower story. Now I want to share with you um, four short phrases that have deep impact that were spoken there in the garden. As we're here all the way at the beginning, the preface really, the first chapter of the story of God. There's pretty incredible concepts that were laid down upon us through just short, tiny little phrases. Three words, four words. Let me just throw this out before we get it up there. Does anybody know what are the first three words that God said to man? Anybody ever thought about that before? Go ahead with that first slide. Well, here it is. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. God, very first words to man, very first time communicating. He says, you are free. Isn't that massive for us this morning? I don't know, I got the ESV here. They kind of changed the translation a little bit. Newer, I kind of like the other ones better. Same basic thing is what it says. He said, you may surely eat. I like the other translation that says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And that's big for us as humans this morning to have this truth impressed upon our heart that God gives freedom. At the beginning of the story, he could have created it a different way. He could have made us into robots. He could have forced us to love him and serve him. Adam and Eve, he could have done that as well, but he said, nope, I understand what love is. I understand that there's a will to it. And I understand that to man, I'm going to say, you are free to choose. And that opened up a lot for Adam and Eve, didn't it? We recognize that of all the hundreds, if not thousands of trees that were there in the garden, he could have obeyed God. He could have done what he was supposed to, but instead that freedom he chose wrongly, epically, terribly wrongly. 
And the rest of the story goes on for there. But we are given a choice as players in this story. Second one, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Think about the punch and the power of that phrase. So now here in this grand story, we've got the, we've got the introduction of evil. We've got the introduction of the opposite of everything that's good. And we've got the serpent with these four words was planting seeds of contempt, seeds of doubt. And it's vitally important for us to recognize today that we have an enemy that is not going to come right out and say, oh, you know what? God didn't mean that. God's wrong. And here's what you need to do. You know, you look at his tactic and he was much more insidious than that with merely a question did God really say he encouraged doubt he encouraged contempt and he encouraged the idea in the the mind of Eve and Adam that says God is holding out on you and maybe for some here this morning this is a word that is ringing true for you. Maybe you're, you're trying to live the Christian life and maybe you're on the edge, not sure if you believe or not. Maybe you don't believe and you're just here to appease somebody. No matter what, we welcome you here. But maybe you're like, I don't know, that's what I'm struggling with because the enemy's coming in and he's luring me into this idea that maybe God's holding out on me. I'm not sure he really exists. Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? And in your mind, you're believing and being deceived into various lies. They're going to cut you out of the equation and the fall of your story is going to be imminent. Continuing on in Genesis chapter three, verse nine, we get the third short phrase. Genesis chapter three, of course, we know the story. They ate, they were deceived, they disobeyed God. And then we get the next three word phrase in Genesis chapter three. We'll start reading in verse eight. And they, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now just park there for a minute. Think about that. What did that sound like? Crackling branches? Was he singing? They heard God walking in the garden and coming. It says, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Think about those three words. Think about the impact that those three words are having in this story with Adam and Eve. Because once they sinned, once they disobeyed God, it says that they recognized that they were naked they had shame all of a sudden. Shame entered into the equation. I disobeyed the one who loved me. And so now I need to go into hiding. And I love that it says they fashioned for themselves a little apron of fig leaves, right? Whatever that looked like. First seamstress, maybe. But it says they're hiding literally behind a tree. And just imagine the Lord is now walking in the garden. And this is so significant because he knows where they are. He's God. 
He could probably even see a little, you know, heel sticking out of somewhere. They're hiding behind a tree. But instead, he still throws out the question, where are you? So he's not talking about physically. He knows where they are. But instead, we see that there is now a separation that's introduced. Spiritually, they're no longer connected. There's now a barrier between them, that barrier of unrighteousness and choices that will, that will help yourself rather than choices that will obey God. Sometimes we can be present without really being present. Sometimes I'm with my kids and they've kind of learned to ask me the same question two or three times. You know what I mean? Because my mind is elsewhere. I'm answering an email. I'm thinking about something that I got to do. I'm thinking about a project. My mind's out here in left field somewhere. And dad, can we do this? Dad, can we do this? Dad, come back here. Where are you? And here in the garden, we see that there is a separation. And that Adam and Eve decided it was better to hide in shame rather than to come humbly to the one who loves them and created them. But we see here in God a pursuit of relationship. Right from the beginning, from the upper story, I'm going to create mankind, I'm going to design, I'm going to fashion, I'm going to build. And then right here in the lower story, there's God walking in the garden. Hello, where are you? We're ready for our five o'clock walk. I want to talk with you. I want to share with you. I want you to communicate with me. Do you see the heartbeat of God, the author of the story, even from the beginning? Pursuit of relationship. Not because we're so great, but because God created us and he loves us and he knows what's best for us. The last one we see here in Genesis chapter 3 is found in verse 12 and 13. When God says, what happened? Who told you you were naked? Why did this happen? Verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. That's his answer right there. The woman. I expect no amens right now. And that would be a bad spot to say that. No, but he says, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the little phrase that's defining here in Genesis chapter 3, the last one in this lower story, is it wasn't me. And thus the game of deflection and blaming begins. So mankind, to protect himself, to make himself look better, to not take on the shame and the guilt, deflects the blame to somebody else. It was the woman, oh, by the way, that you gave me And Eve did the same thing. It was the serpent that you created. And thus we enter into the story and the struggle of man and the consequences of sin. I think it's important to recognize here that before this, there was no death. There was no, there was no injury. There was no pain. There was peace in the garden, right? And think about this. They had made these little aprons of fig leaves, right? But then it says, the Lord God made for them a covering from the skins 
of animals. It's almost as if God's saying, well, nice try with the little sewing job, but I've got something better. Here's a fur coat. (laughs) But I want you to think about this concept. So now blood is being shed. Something had to die in order to cover their shame. That's a hint of what is to come. So we've got the upper story and we've got the lower story and we could go on and on about the different concepts there, but ultimately it needs to land on the idea of your story. If thing, this thing wasn't so high, I would jump down right here to a whole nother level to be right there with you, right? So what does this mean for us at the beginning of this story? Well, when we talk about the idea of a grand narrative, a grand story, there are four questions that you need to answer. Really, in any story, in any movie. Who are we? Where are we? What is wrong? And what's the solution? Now, for somebody who is perhaps not buying in, they would what would we would call postmodern thoughts, they would basically come along with the idea that, you know what, there is no grand narrative. So the answers for them are pretty simple. Who are we? We're an accident. We're just the summation of a series of circumstances that somehow happened, and so that's how we have life. Where are we? Uh, we're just lucky enough to be on a planet that supports life. What's wrong? Nothing. Really, if you think about it, somebody doesn't believe in a grand design and a grand designer, there really is no right and wrong, because who determines that? I'm living in my own little story, so nothing's wrong. What's the solution? Make yourself a king. Why not take every opportunity to conquer everything you can, to gather all the possessions that you can, to feel everything good that you possibly can, and to make yourself a king? But if we come into the perspective that says, no, there is a grander story, we answer those questions differently, don't we? Who are we? We're a people that are created for relationship. There's a void, and God is wanting to fill it. Where are we? We're living in a broken world, waiting. What's wrong? We're separated from our love. What's the solution? To live our lives for his kingdom. To step into his family and to try and please our father. So what's the thread that ties all this together even way back in the book of Genesis which Jewish people believe and Muslim people believe and all the so many world religions all start out here? What is the thread that holds it all together? What are the hints? Well, we've already talked about the Trinity in verse 1 and 2 and verse 26 of Genesis 1. But there's an even bigger one that's hinted at. Chapter 3, verse 15. This is God talking to the enemy. Genesis 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be a battle. There's going to be tension, he says. And he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right there, way at the beginning of the story, there's a foreshadowing that says, all right, Satan, you know what? You're going to bruise the heel of the offspring, offspring of Eve. 
So there's going to be somebody that's born down the line and you're going to bruise his heel. And even many times along the line, that's what the enemy's role is going to be. He's going to be one that causes us to limp. He causes us pain. It's not the end. He doesn't have the victory, but he certainly is an annoyance. But it says he will bruise your head or he will crush your head. So in other words, the hope is given, the gospel is given right there, that there is good news, there is going to be a redeemer, there is going to be a savior, and he is going to be victorious. And when you talk about the enemy that is an annoyance, and you talk about a snake, and how do you kill a snake? I'm not suggesting we kill snakes. Don't send me any of those emails. But there may be a time when you may have to kill a snake. Because it poses a threat, right? But what is the way to kill a snake? You got to get right on the head, right? It's not going to do any good to step on its tail. You got to go right where the power is. And if a snake's head is crushed, it is powerless. So even in Genesis, we get the hint that something way bigger is going on. Let me just throw down this final thought to you. You know, we've been talking about this idea of God and how God desires relationship and I just want to share with you if we don't take anything else away from this opening session I want you to see a God who is relentlessly pursuing us and calling us and drawing us no matter what we've done and God is not a God like many of our other relationships that want a relationship with us for some sort of gain do you know what I'm saying do you ever sense that in any of your friends, any of your co-workers, even some of your family members? The reason they're coming alongside, the reason that they're buttering you up or whatever is because they want something from you. Remember a couple years ago, we were in a Target, not far from here, actually, very close to here. And uh, my wife and I were there and we're pushing around our shopping cart and all of a sudden this lady sidles up right next to us. Becca was, uh, she was in the uh, hair care section. How do you say and uh, this lady sidles up right next to us like, oh, this bedhead, I don't know which one's which. And my teenage daughter is just, oh, I just don't know. Uh, do you know anything about these? My wife knows th- all things about hair care products. Like, oh, well, you can go for this gel over here. Or you can do this paste or this one's really good too or whatever. And so this lady starts talking to us. Oh, do you have kids? Oh, tell me about your kids. Uh-huh. Oh, and what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's fascinating. I just love when people give their lives towards helping others. That's wonderful. My name's blah, 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 by the way. And so we start talking and I'm like, hey, God, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity. Share the gospel. Seems like a nice person. North Carolina is a nice place. Lots of friendly people. So we start talking. Next thing you know, like her husband kind of meanders over. Oh, hi, you know, yeah. Oh, what do you do? Oh, that's fascinating. That's wonderful. And then he throws down the line that I should have seen coming. He's like, you know, I've heard that there's a lot of pastors that maybe need um, some extra income from time to time. Come again now? Well, you know, you look like a really outgoing person. Both of you look like you're pretty bubbly and confident. And we'd love to share with you an opportunity that if you join our club and if you sell this stuff, we'll let you get in on the ground level so that you can uh, supplement your income so that you can do your job more effectively. You know what I'm saying? Everything, the whole reasoning of the whole conversation was to get us into some pyramid scheme. 
She didn't even buy any of the bedhead. She literally didn't. And so after we figured out what was going on, we're like, oh, you know what? I think we're good. And they just kept on pestering and meandering or whatever. And, and they just walked away. And I felt like being like, oh, you know what? You forgot your hair care product. And they walked right out of the store, right? And what's crazy hilarious is a couple of months later, Becca was in there again. Same lady came right up to her with some other line. Oh, what are you looking at? Socks? What kind of socks do you get? Let me share with you what I get. Oh, hi, by the name, do you have any kids? Oh, wonder. Same exact lady, and she didn't even connect that she'd already, she'd already flown that coop. So, of course, Becca went to the management. Um, I just want to let you know there's somebody that's harassing and trying, you know. True story. But what's the point? We got so many people that, oh, I want a relationship with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to spend time with you. But it's on their own agenda, and it's for some other reason. I'm here to tell you today that God in all of his goodness, in all of his glory. He wants a relationship with you, not because you can do anything for him. Not because he needs you in his service. He wants a relationship with you because he loves you and he desires to walk with you. And he knows what's best for us. And he knows the best solution for us is to live in accordance with the one who created us. So where does it all come together? Just in closing, I want to read this incredible passage to you from the book of Romans because here we see the hints in the shadows. Here's what Paul says way thousands of years later in Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You got to wonder if he was writing that and like, I hope one of you guys would die for me. Uh, perhaps for somebody you love a lot, you would. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still far off, while we were still in our sin and shame, Christ died for us. And the next verse says this, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and his name was Adam, we already talked about it. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Here's the key phrase, who was a type of the one who was to come. So in other words, this is just not a disconnected narrative. It says Adam was a type. Adam was a hint. Adam was a shadow of one who is to come. But the free gift of Jesus is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many just one man sinned death to all but he was just a shadow of the just one man who came with the righteous act of dying and that gave life to all who would believe it's an incredible love story and i'm so thrilled to journey through this with you and i just want you to know here this morning that you are loved and that God is pursuing. And God is there and God is waiting. 
There are several passages in scripture that talk about God is seeking, right? And John talks about that. God is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. God is looking, God is watching, God is there. And I just want to challenge you this morning to think about your life, where you are in your story. And have you recognized that the very same one that was there in Genesis, involved in creating, is still there by your side right now? Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. In him, that is Jesus, in him all things were created by him and for him. You were created for relationship with Jesus. And I just want to challenge us this morning to think about what that was like. Think about the barriers that come up in our lives that cause us to hide in shame. And think about the way back that was made through one man and one righteous act. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we just come before you thankful for who you are. Thankful for your revelation to us. Thankful, God, that although we don't see the entire story, we see glimpses and pictures of hope. And God, I just ask here this morning as we begin this journey that you would remind us and you would impress upon our own hearts of where we are and that this wouldn't be just another Sunday where we come and hear and kind of listen, but walk out the same. But God, that this would be a Sunday where we recognize, man, I was created for something enlightening and powerful and life-giving because you've given me a soul and that soul needs to be connected to you. And I've let something get in the way of that. So Lord, I just pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our lives. And I just thank you, God, that you are enough, that all we have and all we need is Christ. Yeah. In your son's name we pray. Amen.